Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Show podcast. Today on the pod, are provincial laws unfairly benefiting tenants? We talked to a group of landlords who've launched an online petition demanding change. And we begin our year in review series this week as we focus on the Fraser Valley. From a gridlocked Trans-Canada Highway to housing to climate change, we look at the issues facing this fast-growing region in Metro Vancouver. Plus, do Metro Vancouver residents accept the BC government's greater involvement in deciding housing and zoning policies? We look into that issue. Plus, Tesla recalls nearly 2 million vehicles to install safeguards to its autopilot system. But is that enough to fix its safety issues? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Let's focus uh, on the rental business, specifically uh, landlords. A group claiming to represent BC landlords uh, has launched a petition calling for changes, saying the province's laws favor tenants. Now, the petition, which is created by a group calling itself the Landlord, Landlord Rights Association of BC, claims provincial laws are unfairly slanted towards tenants, and the result... Uh, is that many of them are stuck with bad tenants and they can't boot them out. Joining me now to discuss the issue is Baldeep Jund, who is a member of Landlord Rights Association of BC. Baldeep, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Jazz Joel, for inviting me on your show. Uh, walk me through why uh, your organization uh, is uh, putting, together the, putting together this p- petition, which they have, and why it's such an issue for landlords at this point in regards to what they're seeing in the market. Just like we heard like lots of stories from the frustrated landlords because uh, uh, they have going through this process with the tenancy laws and tenancy laws uh, are too much in the favor of the tenants. And when we heard the bad stories and painful experiences from the landlords, then we decided that I think so there is some issue. Mm-hmm. And we started that one post on the Facebook page and on the first day like we got like 150 comments that people are saying that we are uh, having a trouble with the tenancy laws and the problematic tenants. Mm-hmm. And then we realized, okay, maybe there, could, uh, there was a, like a real problem then. And then we dig it into that one. And it took us more than five months to prepare this 10-point petition so that we can uh, explore the challenges that the landlords are facing in these days. And we, also, we, we, we didn't only give the challenges, yes, we also provided few uh, solutions to the problems as well, so that the government can listen and correct the tenancy laws and make this laws equal and fair for both the tenants as well as for the landlords. So what are the specific concerns landlords have? Give me two or three of the major challenges you think landlords are facing in this province. The big problem, just uh, like we, the landlords are facing, uh, like the unpaid rent damage to the property and the eviction cost. These are the unnecessary costs now, well, like the, the issue like if a landlord or tenant started dispute and the problem the landlords are facing that the tenants stop paying the rent and the RTB decision are too slow, it could take three months, four months, five months along the way and the, the landlord's rent is always on the hook mm. and if they got the eviction, uh, tenants has the damage to the property and there is a hardship for the landlords first to locate the tenants and if they can locate the tenant and still they, they are not uh, able to recover the money from the tenant. So that's what we are saying, okay, government should look into this thing, start some sort of insurance program here so that the landlords or tenants, like whatever the case maybe the government can make, uh, so that landlords can cover those unpaid rents and damage to the property damages, right? So we're suggesting those things. And plus, uh, we are asking this fixed term, because fixed term was uh, 
working very good in other uh, provinces in Canada, and it was working in BC before 2017, but government changed the law. What, what do you and mean by, what, what, did you say fixed term? See now, yeah, yeah, fixed term. Yeah, see if you can, if you can see the uh, term fixed term, it comes to your mind. Okay, we have a fixed term. It's the start date and the end date. That's the normal impression every person can take. But technically, if you can have the fixed term on the date of the end of the fixed term, it will continue on the month-to-month basis. Right. So what we are suggesting to the government, please restore that fixed term clause into the contracted tenancy agreement again, so that at least that term can be used against the problematic tenants who are giving the hardship to the landlords. Mm. Um, was it any better before 2017, before the NDP were elected? I mean, you're saying the, the laws have been so watered down at this particular point since then that it is, it's not even worthwhile to, to be a landlord anymore? That's true because there was a report is also like we are also talking to our landlords right now we got like close to 30,000 30, signatures online and in person and stories we are hearing from the landlords they are so frustrated they are saying why we need to rent our place if we can take so much headache so much pressure so much pain with the tenancy laws if we are dealing with this situation we are ruining our time consuming money and wasting our time and the resources and at the end, we are not getting any results in the favor of the landlord because the laws are too much favoring the tenants. So they are of the view, okay, then why we need to uh, rent our place? So on the one side, government is saying, okay, we are having affordable housing crisis because this is not for the landlords. Landlords did not create this housing crisis issue. These are the government policies and the soft laws, and that's why the landlords are refraining to go into the uh, rental uh, situation here. Mm. Uh, and when you do go into, um, you know, when you have to deal with tenants and you do go through that process, uh, some sort of arbitration, uh, has that gotten longer or is that still as, as long as it's always been? Is, is it or is an issue where there's more disputes now you have to wait even longer for some sort of resolution for, uh, for your case? Yeah, we, we have, like, this is the stats from the uh, residential tenancy branch from DSL, like in 2022, 2022, uh, and basically regular hearing is taking uh, 15 weeks, normally, and government is saying, okay, it is taking now 11 to 12 weeks. So that's the lacking there because they don't have the much, like, uh, personal power there, so they don't have much people there who can give the decision. So... So there is a one case, like one guy, he got the mutual agreement with the tenant, and the mutual agreement was not honored by the tenant, and they go to the RTD, and the uh, dispute date was uh, in uh, April, so basically five months. So this is very normal trend is going on, that the longer the period, we have the more like frustrating process for the tenants as well as for the landlords as well. Hey, welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us, we're speaking to Baldeep Jund. He is with an organization called Landlord Rights Association of BC. They're putting together a petition, 30,000 signees already. And they're basically claiming uh, that uh, BC landlords um, uh, say that the laws that we have in this can, in, in this province uh, favor tenants, not landlords. And uh, they say, say things have to change and they have to be quite dramatic. Now, Baldeep, we're in the middle of a housing crisis. There's a housing shortage and landlords have done well in regard to rents, one assumes. I mean, I think the last article that I looked at, average rents in Vancouver around twenty-eight, twenty-nine, even three thousand 
dollars per month for a one bedroom. It's fair to say whatever challenges you may have, landlords have actually done well in this market. Uh, and when tenants hear this, they're going to say, wait a minute, I'm paying a lot more. And okay, there are some bad tenants along the way. But at the end of the day, those laws that are there are there to protect us. Um, what would you say to the folks that say landlords are generally have done better because the rents are higher? Yeah, no, that's true because, see, the landlords are working hard day and night, right? They, they made the money, they, they saved the money, they invested the money. So they, they do, do need some type of security from the government when they are investing something. So we are just simply asking, give us some more tools to the landlords so that people, small landlords, they are not refrained from renting their place. We have the housing crisis and landlords are willing to provide their places to the tenants, but they do need some kind of protection, some kind of security insurance from the government that their property is secure, their uh, rent is secure, and other investment is safe and secure. So we have no problem with that, that one, but government need to step in to make a right uh, step in the right direction mm. and give the faith to the landlords as well. So it is fair for both tenants and for the landlords. And when you say your organization is speaking on behalf of landlords, I know it's called the Landlord Rights Association of BC. These are what, mom and pop um, uh, landlords, people who own a rental property or two, that type of thing? Uh, when we started, it was like the landlords who are from the small, uh, like landlords who own two or three properties, but eventually we are getting a momentum and few like big like developers, they are also joining our uh, cause because they are also having the same problem. Because like they are, they are giving the rental property, they are uh, willing to build the rentals, but due to the tenancy laws, they are also facing the same challenges. So now we, those people are also coming on the board. When are you planning to, uh, f- you said you've hit about 30,000 uh, signees so far with your online petition? Yes, online and in in person on the papers as well. And are you going to hand this to the provincial government then? Yeah, that's our whole plan. We are trying to make an appointment to Mr. Ravi Kalu, our housing minister. I already made a request to him uh, through the email to his office, but I have not received any response yet. So once we get the response, we have a meeting scheduled. We can happy to talk with Mr. Ravi Kalu and give our petition to him and telling that, okay, these are our genuine and bona fide concerns, please listen to us and make some uh, good, right uh, decisions on this. Are people leaving, are landlords that own, forget about the bigger players, but just the mom and pop investors, are people getting out of the landlord business, like selling their properties because it's not worth their time anymore? Yes, sir. That's a very true statement. Uh, People are refraining from that. They are selling their properties. They are saying, okay, why we need to go into this headache? Why would take this all pain if we are not getting anything? Because once you are in this uh, uh, this mess, there's very low chances that you can get something favorable decision on your side. So people are, are thinking that way. Okay, why we need this uh, frustration? Let's leave it, sell it the house, and just stay away from it. Mm-hmm. Now with rents at twenty eight hundred, twenty nine hundred, even three thousand dollars for a one bedroom in uh, Vancouver. Um, you know, you're not going to get much sympathy from some people. For a lot of people, saying, "Wait a minute, rents have gone up a lot." Sometimes three thousand dollars for one bedroom. In, in some cases, uh, in the city itself, uh, there's not too many people feeling sorry for landlords. Just be based on the prices and the huge increases we've seen in prices. 
just on the other hand, like if you can go to the property taxes, all the cities have increased property taxes to 11% to 15%, maybe 16%, and no one is talking about the land that's also facing the hardships. BC hydro bills have gone like extensively, portage, BC gas, other, other bills are going up. Mortgage uh, bills are going up. So we are not saying, okay, we do need like bigger picture. We are, once we came to Canada, like 10, 20 years, we were also the tenants. We know that what, what, what was uh, happened at that time. Here, just we are asking to the government, create the more harmony between the tenants and landlords. Landlords need to understand the concerns that the tenants are facing. And on the same token, we, we ask the tenants can also understand the position of the landlords because they are investing, but they also need some understanding from the tenants as well. If their costs gone up, maybe they can also contribute a little bit to that direction. Uh, Mr. John, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jess. Thank you for uh, this opportunity. Thank you very much. The Fraser Valley is one of the fastest growing regions uh, in BC. Uh, it, uh, by 2050, it will be home to over 500,000 people. That's about a 48% growth over its current population. It's home to 17,000 businesses. Uh, and it's been a busy year uh, in that part of Metro Vancouver. And I thought we'd do a, a year in review. And one of the areas I think we need to be focusing on more and more is uh, the Fraser Valley, not only because of housing, but because of so many other regions got interesting businesses that open up in that area uh, and it's so vital to to the economic economy of the uh, metro vancouver area but also it's where people live and play as well but joining me now to talk a little bit about the year in review for the fraser valley is tyler olson who's the editor for the fraser valley current tyler thank you for joining us Thanks for having me, Jeff. Lots to talk about for the area. And every time I go out to the Fraser Valley, I'm always amazed at something new popping up and, and, and all of that. So before we get to the housing issue, uh, let's talk about just driving out to um, uh, to the Fraser Valley. And that, of course, would be the Trans-Canada Highway. Uh, I know there was a, a new phase of uh, the Trans-Canada expansion announced by the provincial government. Uh, I think it's a $2.3 billion project. And we forget sometimes that on that very highway corridor, $65 billion in goods uh, goods travel through that area. Walk me through what this new announcement will mean uh, for the for the uh, Fraser Valley. Yeah, so what the province has promised was, and they prom- the NDP promised this when they ran for election in 2017, was to widen the highway. And so we have more details uh, this year about what exactly that will look like, and that will be um, up to five lanes in each direction, between uh, the Vedder Canal and between Chilliwack and Abbotsford and uh, Langley and places uh, to the west. Mm -hmm. So on those five lanes, you'll have, um, I think, one more lane for dedicated to average travel and then an HOV lane, a truck lane, and potentially a bus on shoulder lane that would accommodate rapid transit uh, on buses uh, throughout the valley. And I'm, I'm going to assume that that uh, that's something residents, of course, pretty much want. I mean, the argument is probably is why hasn't it been done already? Yeah, I think you talk to anybody, mo- most people out here, and they'll they'll say that the highway needs to be widened. And of course, there's the other argument that. Some people will say that money would be better spent on transit, but even among many transit users out here, the the ability to get in and out of the, uh, Vancouver is really important, and there's also just, uh, as you mentioned, the importance for uh, goods and services to move on that corridor. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you expect, I mean, this is a tough one to answer, do you ever expect SkyTrain to come out to Abbotsford? 
in your lifetime? In our lifetime, yeah. uh, probably not. But there's a it's it's already getting to Langley City, and then the case to get beyond that is becomes a business uh, case and also a politics case. The the valley is suddenly a lot more politically. Uh, less certain than it ever was, and suddenly there's a maybe a political incentive to move it out towards the Abbotsford and Chilliwack area, where votes are suddenly more precious and, and more competitive than they once were. So I wouldn't expect it anytime soon, but I imagine it's on somebody's long-term radar. Yeah. Well, I look at it now, once they complete the uh, the Surrey-Langley expansion to Langley City, you've always thought moving it up to 200th Street, and you've got that big movie theater out there right on the highway at 200th and Highway 1. It's got a massive parking lot that generally sits empty most of the time. I always thought that would be a great place for a park and ride and put a station there, at least get it to the highway, and people can park and ride and, and then decide if they want to come into to, uh, the city uh, that way. But that's we'll leave that conversation for another day. That's uh, a bit of spitballing. You mentioned um, the issue of, of just politics and, and things changing. Now, uh, pol- part of the politics in that area is that that area generally has voted uh, BC United or BC Liberal in the past, but things have changed since 2020. Give me a sense of what you're seeing, hearing, feeling in regards to politics. A tough one to answer, but uh, we got a provincial election next year. What are you hearing? Yeah, well, this is all tied into the fact that, as you mentioned, the, the area is growing incredibly fast. And a lot of those new um, arrivals are from places that have a, uh, traditionally voted for maybe the Liberal and the NDP versus the Conservative uh, and right-leaning parties that have dominated the Valley for so long. So all of those people are shifting the balance of power and making it more likely for um other parties to win in in 2020, 2021, whenever we had that last provincial election, Chilliwack's two provincial ridings both went to the NDP, and we saw an Abbotsford one going to the NDP as well. And obviously, with the uh, struggles of BC United and the rise of the BC Conservative Party, there uh, it's it's really up in the air what it will look like next time. The the split of the parties will help the NDP, like it will help. Um, the party everywhere in BC and and it could really reshape kind of the map again uh, in terms of that. And, and then just everything is really tied into the fact that so many people have been moving to the Valley and the house prices too, right? Because mm-hmm. lots of people are moving out here because the prices are comparatively so much cheaper than to the, to the West in Vancouver. And so all that reshapes a whole number of issues, including transportation, politics, and, and more. Uh, now, before we get to the housing issue, you had mentioned just folks more leaning to, vo- to voting NDP or center-left uh, or uh, federal liberal. I- is it just a large South Asian population, or are you just finding young people um, you know, wanting parties that focus more on daycare? It's got to be a little bit all of it, isn't it? It's immigration plus just you know, native-born Canadians just moving out there to, to buy a home, I'm assuming. Yeah, it's definitely all of those factors. You have a larger South Asian population in Chilliwack, significantly more than just five years ago. You have um, people who, um, just from all walks of life, are moving not only from Vancouver to Langley, and then Langley people to move to Vancouver, and and 
and Abbotsford, or Langley people move to Abbotsford, and the Abbotsford people move out to Chilliwack, and it all knocks onto one another. Mm-hmm. And so you have a lot of young families seeking out homes in the Chilliwack and Abbotsford area where they might be able to actually find a single-family home with a backyard, which is uh, particularly important if you have young kids. And and those factors all, all play into just, I think, um, making the the politics less polarized maybe in, in, in some way in the valley and and more uh, focused on some issues that are um, just relevant to the average person in terms of house prices and that sort of thing. Hey, welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us, uh, we're speaking to Tyler Olson. He's the editor of the Fraser Valley Current, a great newsletter, by the way. I highly recommend you check it out. Uh, it's part of our year in review series, and today we're focusing on the Fraser Valley. Um, Tyler, let's talk a little bit about housing, because so much of, of uh, what drives growth is housing, the type of housing that's available. There's no doubt uh, people are very much interested in moving to the valley because of uh, affordable housing compared to some of the uh, areas in Vancouver, that's for sure. Um, give me a sense of the type of housing you're building out there and the type of growth that you're seeing. Yeah, I think lots of people still have the conception that the Fraser Valley is dominated by single-family homes, and that's because that's true. Um, but the actual way or the type of homes, new homes that are being built across the valley has really shifted just as it's shifted everywhere. In Abbotsford and Chilliwack, it, it's probably about 20% of new homes built are single-family homes, and the rest are a split between apartments and townhouses, with most of them being apartments. The same is true in Mission. And in Langley, that community is built, or the township of Langley, so the area around the city, has built some of the, the the highest number of new homes have gone up there than anywhere else in the province. They've added the scale of growth there is pretty remarkable to behold. And to actually drive through, you're driving through new neighborhoods each, uh, each year. So it's it's growing at a rapid pace, and it's really going to change the the way that the communities feel and the and the places that people live and and the type of housing that is available to people. Mm. And in regards to the new housing rules that have been introduced in regards to density, uh, how much of an impact do you see that having, especially in and around transit? Does that change the face of the community potentially? Potentially, the biggest changes really are going to be the the changes that st- that require um, municipalities to approve apartments in certain areas and not require parking in those areas. But in places like Mission and and Chilliwack and even parts of downtown Abbotsford, some of the rules are still already permit the source of density that the province wants to see some of the barriers are just are just those parking uh rules and then some of the barriers have just been the the, the, on getting approvals and and smoothing the bureaucracy a little bit of the process that can kind of hold up those developments Hmm. how long have you lived out in that area about a decade a a little more than a decade and what's it like i mean what what, you know when people think of you know uh, having fun people think go think of potentially going downtown for restaurants concerts all those types of things but i've always found suburbs are increasingly a great place for a friday saturday night with friends you don't necessarily need to be going to downtown uh, how would you describe the valley in in regards to just uh, opportunities for entertainment opportunities to spend some of um, your dollars and enjoy yourself 
Yeah, I think that's a still a, it's still a struggle that the Valley is wrestling with in trying to find a balance that appeals to younger younger people, and then while also making kind of use and and embracing the type of uh, community level older dad type of not older dad, but like younger parents um, lifestyle that I think it's known for and it. it works well for it. There's so many recreational amenities in the area. There's a huge number of trails. The mountain bike community is massive and the mountain bike infrastructure is massive and growing all the time. And that's really where a lot of the recreation and and time is spent. And so trying to find a way to bridge those two and then create communities where people don't have to have a car to still have fun mm-hmm. is, is really a challenge a lot of the communities are facing. Now, we can't end this uh, uh, conversation without talking about the atmospheric river that had such a huge impact uh, on Abbotsford and Chilliwack as well. Walk me through uh, what you have seen being done in that community since then uh, in regards to flood mitigation, potential um, infrastructure being built or talked about or discussed in, in regards to being built. Give me a sense of where we're at in regards to just future flood mitigation. Right. A lot of the, that work, a lot of the small-scale work has been done now. The the easy wins, the um, quick improvements to certain dikes, the dredging of certain waterways to just provide more capacity and decrease the, the scale of, and likelihood of a few, future large flood. But those are often and usually very small wins in the grand scheme of things. Actually, um, reconfiguring flood protections and just how we uh, exist with the, the rivers in the region is something that's going to take years and years and decades. And there's been some proposals um, out there, but they've gone to government and they'll look at those six days to Sunday and somebody will make a funding announcement at some point and then who knows how long that'll all take. I think one other thing to remember is that up in the Fraser Canyon, just kind of on our, our edge, there's also been large effects from from fires. And somebody asked me today how many buildings have been rebuilt in Lytton, and I had to say none. Uh, there's one house under construction, but that still struggles. So it just shows kind of the difficulties that actually rebuilding after a disaster can be. There's going to be obviously some conversation, probably is already obviously, in regards to how our neighbours to the south uh, handle uh, the river on that side. Uh, Are those conversations ongoing as well in regards to just making sure we don't see something like this, or at least we're prepared next time? Yeah, those conversations always happen, and the problem there is it's kind of a you can't have a win-win situation almost <laughs> with regards to that river. You have, they have kind of the power to decide where it goes, and Canada has to try and work within those and, and maybe work with them on notification systems and, and some of the small-scale stuff they can do while just understanding that reality means that they, the, the Americans are going to look at the Nooksack and say it's either going to flood you or it's going to flood us, and our voters would rather flood you sometimes. Um, final question. I mean, the for, in regards to flood mitigation, you literally need to spend billions of dollars to shore up our diking system uh, in that area, but also in communities like Richmond and Delta. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, do you see the commitment there? I mean, it, it's going to take billions and the will has to be there and you've got to explain it to taxpayers that this has to be done or we're going to see more of this. Or is, is the conversation there where you can actually have an honest conversation with voters and say this is going to be done and it has to be done and we're going to pay for it? 
it might be there, but it's kind of a political question because it's always, and this is the problem with any emergency preparedness thing, it's always something you can kick down the road four more years and another four more years. And the further you kick it down the road, the less public pressure there is to actually do something. When there's the less memories you have as a politician about why you need to be doing it. So it's kind of you're dealing with human nature there, and I think something will be done, but there's you still need to first put in play, place a plan and pro- process to decide which pro- programs get built first and then how to actually find the money to deal with that. Tyler, we've run out of time. As always, thank you so much. Merry Christmas to you. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Now, we started the show uh, speaking to the landlords of BC, uh, and the focus was uh, essentially, uh, sorry, the Landlord Rights Association of BC, and they were basically saying that, look, uh, the the rules have changed, the pendulum has swung uh, from uh, laws that were pretty balanced pre-2017 uh, to post-2017 when they felt that the laws and rules of this province have been geared more towards tenants. Uh, and uh, that, of course, happened with the change of government. Now, I was talking to, speaking to Baldeep Jund, and uh, many folks have said, look, uh, you always have bad tenants. That's just part of being a landlord. Uh, and at times, uh, you're going to have bad tenants as well. Uh, it's just a part of doing uh, part of uh, being a tenant as well. Uh, and apparently, uh, a lot of calls on this issue. So we're going to get to them in a few minutes, but I want to get to a poll uh, that just came out today. Uh, it was from the Angus Reid Institute, and the poll itself um, talked to BC residents. What, uh, the Angus Reid Institute wanted to get a sense of what British Columbians were thinking and feeling as the year comes to a close. And they focused on three things in this poll. Uh, they wanted to get people's thoughts on the province's new uh, housing policy. They also wanted to talk about what are the issues that are top of mind for Canadians. Uh, like healthcare, like affordability. And of course, the third part of the poll, uh, they wanted to talk to folks uh, about the pending provincial election fall of 2024 and what they were thinking and about uh, who they would vote for potentially. Joining me now is Shachi Curl, president of the Angus Reid Institute. Shachi, thank you for joining us. Hi, Jazz. Hi. Lots to talk about here as 2023 comes to a close. Let's focus on on the housing policy. Uh, the Premier was on this show uh, about a week and a half ago, and I did talk to him about the housing policies that they've introduced. And uh, on this program, he said, look, his government wants to take, quote, big swings when it comes to dealing with the housing issue. Um, and, uh, certainly a, and they certainly have when it comes to zoning, when it comes to density. What did your polls say in regards to British Columbians and how they feel about, at this point, on the NDP's housing policy? Well, it's interesting because uh, objectively, I think we can say that, yes, the B.C. government has made a number of announcements. Now, do do British Columbians think that those will be effective announcements or not? Things like prohibiting short-term rentals. You see a a higher level of of support around that. More than half do believe, not just support it, but believe it will be either moderately or very effective. Changing zoning rules, um, you know, that there's a, maybe a little bit more um, skepticism or uncertainty on that one. Setting minimum building heights and density near transit, again, that one's a little bit more divisive. But what I found uh, that was quite interesting is just the number of British Columbians who actually say that the EB government is either doing a, a very poor job, more than half say so, mm-hmm. uh, or a poor job on housing affordability. So that's 83% of British Columbians who are not impressed with with this government's performance on the issue. 
uh, part of me uh, it looks at that and says, how much of that has to do with really hating or disliking or opposing what's been announced and more just a level of frustration uh, around lack of progress? And, of course, we know housing is a complex issue. Mm-hmm. So progress isn't something that's going to come quickly. And it's clearly what we're seeing in, in these numbers and these data is that people are, are not feeling yet the benefits of whatever has been announced. And obviously they won't because, you know, housing takes a while to build. Yeah. And how much of that also do you believe is maybe the public looking around going, well, if I don't trust what the NDP is doing or has done so far, there doesn't seem to be a viable alternative for people right now where they feel comfortable. Maybe I'm wrong here. Correct me if I'm wrong. But are people say, is there a viable alternative on the issue of housing for them at this point as voters? Uh, well, I mean, if, if when you take uh, the options in front of voters uh, as totality, so not only uh, the issues around cost of living, not only the issues around housing affordability, but also access to health care. When we ask British Columbians, okay, where where uh, do you think you would place your vote in an election next year? really important to caveat and point out that, you know, a year, as we both know, is basically a millennium in politics. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, this is where British Columbians are today. If an election were held today, how would you vote? Um, but where they are is despite the, the warts and uncertainty and skepticism that, that British Columbians uh, seem to perceive the NDP as having, um, they're still in a very comfortable electoral Space. And that's because uh, BC United has been on uh, really a year-long uh, tumble in terms of voter support. Uh, this time a year ago, they were they were as high as 34 percent in the polls, just trailing the NDP at that time by only six points. Uh, today, that gap is at 22 points between them and uh, and the BC NDP. And the fact is they're chasing the Conservative Party of B.C. by five points. So the Conservative Party of B.C., which which has, you know, not much in terms of uh, a caucus size. Uh, I don't we don't know if they'll be able to field a full roster of candidates in an election if it were held next year. There's still five points above B.C. United under Kevin Falcon, which I think is a pretty significant uh, indictment of where the former B.C. Liberals stand today. Yeah, part of it. I mean, when you look at the polling, sometimes you can actually see uh, the the drop occurring just as they announced the name change. So there's a lot of confusion, I'm sure, sure out there um, uh, uh, as well. Um, in regards to issues that are top of mind for British Columbians uh, from the start of 2023 to the end of 2023 has much changed? Um, not so much. No, this is a year that started with a lot of concern around cost of living and inflation. That is the issue that has dominated not only in British Columbia, but across the country, regardless of whether you're in a rural or urban setting, it has been the story and the dominant issue for British Columbians. And again, I say people across the country, as as we've seen it in the data, um, it's rare that you see that much consensus around a top issue. Uh, But it is one of those issues that has personally hit people across the country in their wallets, in their pocketbooks. And 
it's, it really just sort of speaks to the basics and the necessities of life. If, if you can't afford stuff, it's mm-hmm. going to stress you out. It's got your attention. Access to health care, also uh, a, a perennial top issue, continues to be a little bit higher with, uh, with uh, older Canadians, those over the age of, of 45, 50, in part because, you know, uh, you start needing the doctor a little bit more at that stage in life. Um, and, and it is one particularly among BC seniors that they're identifying as a major area of concern. And then, of course, housing affordability. Jazz, I feel like you and I have been talking about this issue nonstop for the last, what, dozen years. <laughs> and we're continuing to close out this year talking about this issue. Um, do you think this changes with interest rate drops? I mean, the people's mood and emotion. Like, if it comes down, I think the, the, the Fed, the U.S. Fed was saying there could be potentially be three interest rate cuts next year. Uh, do you think a lot of this, the mood that people have right now uh, and the anxiety may change just based on those interest rate cuts? It could dissipate. Uh, it could also fuel more demand uh, in, in housing, particularly in speculative or commodified housing. You know, all of a sudden it's easier to borrow. So that may help a lot of families actually try to make a decision around buying a home but it it also we know fuels the speculators and the people with a capital base who say this is a great time to buy Mm -hmm. um you know so so let's see what it does in terms of actual the impacts on housing supply there is no doubt though and i'm not an economist and i'm not a a prognosticator about about economic impacts but we do know um plain and simple that this is a time of perhaps the most heightened pain. Mm-hmm. If you're somebody who locked into a variable mortgage rate uh, sometime during the pandemic, you have seen increases to your monthly mortgage payments that are absolutely hair-raising. And more than that, they're just, they're not affordable, right? Like when we think about the trade-offs people have to make. If you are uh, a mortgage payer, or frankly a rent payer who's paying your landlord's mortgage in part, uh, who who locked in, um, again, at, at a much lower rate, at less than 2% in the 1% range, and you're now looking at a renewal of 6 or 7%. Again, that's very frightening, and it's got a lot of British Columbians over their skis, if you will, or just about to slip under the surface of the water. And so that drowning feeling, is it, it's never been higher than it is now. If we see relief, it will be relief for those who are able to hold out long enough to, to see those interest rates drop. But for those who are experiencing it now, um, you know, I don't know how much relief they'll be feeling a year from now, having been through the scars they're already experiencing at the moment. Yeah, you raise a good, very good point. Whatever interest rates do, interest rate cuts do come, um, they couldn't come fast enough. I think 45% of mortgages um, come up in at uh, 2024 and 2025. So the faster those rate cut, cuts come, the less of an impact you'll see on people. But you're right, many of the folks on variable rates um, have been feeling the pain, that's for sure. Shachi, if I don't uh, chat with you, Merry Christmas to you. And you, and Happy New Year, Jess, and to all your view, uh, viewers, listeners, audiences. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Tesla is recalling over 2 million vehicles in the U.S. to install new safeguards in its autopilot advanced driver assistance system after uh, the U.S. federal safety regulator cited safety concerns. Uh, Many have said that uh, this should have been done a lot earlier and it's still not enough when it comes to safety, particularly with its uh, auto steer, uh, autopilot um, uh, system that they do have. It doesn't limit the fact that drivers can engage with the technology and that's part of the problem. 
problem. Joining me now to talk a little bit about the issue is Jeremy Cato. He's an automotive journalist at CatoCarGuy.com. Jeremy, thank you for joining us. Good to be here, Jess. Uh, it's an interesting issue. I know people love their Teslas. They're very popular still, and we continue to buy them. Uh, can you talk to me a little bit about uh, how big of a recall this is in regards to just the impact on the company and what broader message it sends out? Uh, it's a $2 million vehicle uh, recall, uh, but the impact on the company is essentially neg- zero. Um, most of what's being uh, done and what's being required can be handled through over, over-the-air software updates. Mm-hmm. And it's really just to, simpl- uh, to add extra warnings so the drivers pay more attention. Uh, but, you know, you know Jess, the, the, the piece of this that's very difficult, how do you recall the CEO of your company? You know, um, because Elon Musk has been for years touting autopilot as he calls it self-driving, the self-driving Teslas. And they're not. And I don't know how you put a cork in that guy's mouth, but that's really the problem. (laughs) That's right. Recall of a CEO. Well, one of the things that the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, uh, when they launched their investigation into autopilot, they found a string of Teslas plowed into parked emergency vehicles. Uh, There have been, um, they've reviewed more than 900 crashes involving autopilot. Uh, And some have said that it, it, it just shouldn't exist right right now with this, with this recall, it's a warning that will be now, you know, uh, put into the system. It's still not getting rid of this autopilot itself. No, and and, and it won't uh, unless Elon Musk goes down kicking and screaming. I, I think an interesting uh, parallel or, or interesting question I would suggest is why does Tesla get treated differently than, say, Cruise, which is the autonomous or the self-driving division of General Motors? which a cruise vehicle in San Francisco uh, was recently involved in a very, very serious accident. And basically, cruise has been shut down for all its testing, and cruise just laid off, I think, a quarter of its employees. Tesla has been involved in numerous cases involving issues in and around its autopilot system. And yet, Tesla is still allowed, and its CEO, uh, you know, Prince Elon, uh, you know, is, are they, they are just out there still touting autopilot as self-driving. And so I, I believe there's a double standard at play here. Uh, and until consumers start walking with their feet away from Tesla, uh, I don't I don't believe government regulators are going to do anything about it in any serious way. So with this with this recall or they call it a recall, but you're, as you're right, it's a software update. Uh, this recall, th- this update basically forces people to watch autopilot more closely, uh, what safety critics have been saying, they should have banned the defective software outright. Am I correct? Uh, yes, and that's not going to happen. I mean, not yet, at least. And uh, th- th- there is something going on here um, with, with the basically U.S. government regulators pretty much going easy on Elon Musk and his companies as a general, at least in part, um, if you put two and two together because the u.s government is so dependent on elon musk and his various companies if the u.s government wants to launch a satellite in into the uh, into the atmosphere then it's got to have it done by you know uh, tesla's rocket company um if ukraine needs to operate a war it has to use starlink mm-hmm. uh, and you know so there, the 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 you know elon musk has uh, misled investors about a a number of things but the 
Security Exchange Commission has it's gone very soft on him. And because Elon Musk doesn't have a board of directors in any of his companies with any effective oversight, there's no fiduciary responsibility going on in these companies. So I know this sounds like all like business speak, but the auto business is, is a business. And until Tesla is being treated on a level playing, playing field with other auto companies, um, you're going to continue to see this because Elon Musk believes he can get away with pretty much anything. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about another. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I I don't disagree with you. That's one of the, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you about this issue. I know people love their Teslas, but at the end of the day, there's been plenty of accidents on the, with this autopilot. Yes. Uh, I mean, I ever still remember that um, young woman. Uh, I think it was on Lionsgate Bridge applying makeup. Uh, I think the yeah. vehicle was on autopilot. Was it last year or early this year? I can't recall. But you know, you get very nervous when you see those types of things. Now, one of the, one of the other things that's going to be released by Tesla is their Cybertruck, this boxy, right. futuristic-looking truck. But many safety experts, even there, are saying, "Wait a minute, here! You got a stainless steel truck with a with a lot of hard edges. Uh, that alone is going to lead to potentially doing more damage when you're in an accident. Uh, it magnifies magnifies the risk for head-on collisions." All those types of things. So, you know, accidents do occur. Pedestrians do get struck. That's part of life with all vehicles. And it's unfortunate. But with the Cybertruck, you're seeing, wait a minute here, with a stainless steel truck, that's going to do even more damage. Am I wrong here? Uh, no, not at all. First of all, the thing is a beast. I mean, it's a monstrous, monstrous beast with, you know, it uses thick stainless steel. Uh, and the, the front end looks like a battering ram, which if you watch the the introduction and launch of this vehicle, because um, it was online, you can go and see it on YouTube or Vimeo. Um, you know, Elon Musk, one of his big uh, selling points was that it will be the cruelest vehicle on the road today. And if you get into a, an accident with any other vehicle, your Cybertruck will win. Um, and he's probably absolutely correct. This thing is a monster. Now, add to that that any truck is at a higher has a higher bumper height and, yes. and sits higher on the vehicle. So anything over about 40 inches high is extremely dangerous to any other average vehicle out there. Then add into you know the issue around visibility. This this thing looks like it has horrible visibility. Um, and what what about pedestrians and cyclists? And you know so you've got all these things going. Remember that in any collision, unless it's a single vehicle collision into a wall of some sort. There's, there's two vehicles or two two entities involved. Um, so this Cybertruck is basically a rolling monster that will crush anything in its way, and that is the intent of Tesla. Yeah, and, and, and I think you raise a very good point that, look, with these vehicles that are raised a little higher, and it's not just the, the Cybertruck, I mean, SUVs as well. I sure. mean, and you do see more accidents, pedestrians struck, but, but and there's damage uh, and injury uh, simply because the vehicles are higher up. But in this case, you have a stainless steel 6,000-pound, <laughs> you know, machine. And and on top of that, uh, the Cyberbeast, as they're called, it goes 0 to 60 in 2.6 seconds. So it's, yeah. it, it can go really fast, right? Yes. Um, so is this a case in your mind where technology has moved way too quickly for, for uh, legislators and policymakers where uh, when you look at it, and based on our conversation here, looks like technology and Tesla certainly are moving a lot faster than our legislators are? Uh, well, uh, if you're in the United States and if you've watched any of the shenanigans in the House of Representatives, I mean – they, they don't do any legislating there. I mean, zero. And Canada doesn't 
really legislate safety in vehicles. Whatever the Canadian government and its various departments do is dictated out of the United States. We, we don't do any significant crash testing or any of that or vehicle ratings. We, we all we just take whatever uh, National Highway Traffic Safety Administration tells our government to do. Um, but the, the real, you know, just to go back to your more salient point, which, which is about the vehicle itself, I mean, I mean, in vehicles today, they, they build into them things called crash crumple zones. Mm-hmm. So that means the body panels fold sort of accordion-like to absorb the energy during a crash. And, and this Cybertruck doesn't appear to have any crumple zones. It's just a giant beast. And so when it hits other vehicles... It won't deform. The other vehicles will have to deform to accommodate the Cybertruck. And so the shock absorber mechanisms that you would normally have in two vehicles that both have somewhat equal crumple zones only are existing in one vehicle, and that is the vehicle that the Cybertruck hits. So to go to, I guess what I would say that at the very least, I guess federal regulators in the United States could have mandated that it have to have, have uh, the Cybertruck has to have some level of crumple zone so that it is also absorbing some of the energy and an impact. It's, you know, I'm a fan of Teslas in the sense that I love EVs, but I don't have one. But when I start seeing some of the information, whether it's from the 2 million vehicles that need a software update, but at, the, at its core, uh, the autopilot system is not remotely as safe as, as uh, Elon Musk likes to sell. And then you take this cyber truck that goes uh, 0 to 60 in 2.6 seconds, but it's 6,000 pounds of steel. And as you say, it's the crumples, there's no crumple zone. Uh, you get very concerned in regards to safety for pedestrians and for all motorists uh, out there. Uh, I hope this, th- there's a solution there. I really do, uh, because uh, you don't want to see these things on the road like this. And in regards to public safety, and those in, in Teslas as well, it's not something you want to see. If you were to buy an electric vehicle, what, what would you buy? I'm just curious, someone like yourself. Uh, I would buy a hybrid. Uh, yeah, I'd buy any of the many hybrids out there, you know, a Tucson hybrid, a Toyota Prius, mm-hmm. uh, mostly because even though I, I, I'm not sure you might have followed it, but tomorrow, I believe it's tomorrow or Wednesday, the federal uh, energy environment minister, Stephen Gilbo, is supposed to release the final EV mandate numbers that will go into effect with no more negotiation mm-hmm. uh, for the country. I think that will be um, a pyrrhic victory for the liberals. I, I don't see um, the, the average buyer out there uh, or the typical – I don't see the numbers of buyers uh, out there who will be able to afford or will be willing to accommodate uh, this this rule about electric vehicles. I mean, we're talking about three in five vehicles sold in Canada by 2030. It, it looks like that's what the regulation is going to be – has to be some kind of zero emission electric vehicle. Uh, I, I, I don't know. Do you do you have seventy three thousand dollars to buy an EV, Jess? Because that's the average price right well, now. Well, even Plus if you had, even, even if you had that, guess what? Your partner would want one too. Most people are two car. Uh, two-car households make that one hundred and forty thousand plus. That's the problem. Even at fifty thousand, uh, you know, it's you're paying a hundred thousand in Vancouver when everything else is so expensive. So, you know, somewhere along the way, you you have to take people's uh, personal budgets into consideration. So, I, great, it's aspirational. That's wonderful. Just don't think it's realistic. And I think you raise a very good point there as well, as always, Jeremy. Thank you so much. If I don't speak oh. to my friend, Merry Christmas to you. Happy New Year. Thank you so fast. 
All right. Take care of yourself. That did go very quickly. Lots Merry to talk Christmas about. To you. Merry Christmas now, to you as well. All the gang down there at CKNW. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.